0: Welcome to the See Me Now special edition podcast. I'm Kelsey Coleman with my co-host, David Ludlum. We are here today with Colorado Mesa University professor of political science, Justin Golub. Welcome to the show.
1: Oh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, Thanks for being here. I want to jump right in and ask you a question, Dr. Golub, about political science. I think a lot of times people that maybe aren't practitioners of politics, have a negative connotation with it, or they have these strong opinions. They don't always associate politics with science, but that's what you do. So in a way that people who are not familiar with the discipline can relate to, what is political science? You know, I've
2: never really seen a, a, a definition of political science that I like because it, it really is so many different things. It's, um, it, it's a study of individuals. It's a study of policies. It's a study of nations. It's a study of war and peace. It's a study of cultures. It really is this very encompassing, encompassing discipline. Um, the, what holds us together is rigor in how we, we approach Asking and answering questions, uh, but it, we're we're made up of so many different disciplines and uh, are spread so wide in our interest that it's hard to come up with a singular definition.
1: What kind of disciplines? Comprise political science. You've, you said there's several of them. What what are they?
2: Yeah, well, if if there's a grandfather, I would say it's history. That's where we can trace our trace our discipline back. Um, we could probably t- make a stretch and say we can go all, all the way back to Plato, but philosophers may not like that. But political science has sociological aspects, psychological, uh, increasing biology uh, in, in genetics or in their economics. It's really a Frankenstein, or even probably even a better way to think of it is that Mister. Mrs. Potato Head. It's whatever you put on it and however you want to study it, there's probably a space in the discipline for you to study that.
1: A true child of the 80s, the yeah,
2: Mr. Potato bet. Head reference. All right. <laughs> I like you that. I
0: like the Frankenstein. Yeah, 20 those 20, are good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, So you, you received your PhD um, in Bachelor of Science and Political Science from Idaho State your University.
2: I received my bachelor's from Idaho State University. Your bachelor's. And your PhD from? Temple University in Philadelphia.
0: That's right. And you also received a minor... And psychology. Yep. I don't, <laughs> I don't want
2: you to forget about that minor in psychology, I, although I say that tongue-in-cheek because it really has served me well. Yeah, how, yeah. 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 Well, like I said, with political science being so wide, I I, I didn't, I I love psychology. It was probably one of the first things that I was really attracted to in college, but I didn't see myself being a psychologist and I didn't know what that meant. And when I I decided to pursue political science and there was this, this, this intersection with psychology, meaning that I could study individuals, what they think, how they learn about politics, um, what motivates them to vote. These 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 big questions. It was really a light bulb moment that that when I said, "Oh, I you know I don't have to abandon s- psychology in order to do political science, and in many ways I can do
1: both." You mentioned that biology is an, a, a part of political science. That seems like it could be controversial. I don't know that what, very, bi- con, very controversial. <laughs> yeah. I, I would think that would be a very dangerous intersection from a political standpoint. How how do you, how have you experienced the biological components of political science if, yeah. if you feel like going there.
2: Yeah, no, I, 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 I do. Um, Yeah, it, people are afraid with the biology approach because it seems so deterministic, right? I mean, you're born with brown eyes or blue eyes. Does that mean that you're born a liberal or a conservative? Is there that determinism that's built in there? Well, you know, when we talk about genetics, and that's primarily what we're talking about here, it, there's also environmental effects. So there's genetic predispositions, and then there's environmental effects, shared and unshared environment. And so uh, this is a relatively new area. Some of the big studies started to come out in the 1990s that were looking are there genetic effects, or I'm sorry, genetic linkages towards ideology. And certainly enough, they, they uncovered them. And rarely is political science like mainstream news. Um, this, this is one of those times when political science made it into the mainstream news. It wasn't just an obscure academic journal article because a lot of people like you, David, I mean, it was like, wow, what does that mean that we're, that that, that we're determined that we were born a liberal or a conservative? It seems very, very weird
0: yeah and i don't I don't know if this is based off anything, but it seems that oftentimes people who you know are raised in a conservative home or a liberal home, those kids often grow up to have those similar. Um, beliefs. Or the exact that?
2: opposite. <laughs> yeah, it's one. It's like one of the two, right? either mimic it or you reject it. It's, it seems to be rarely in the middle. In fact, were there sitcoms that were built off of this and back to the 1980s reference, right? Um, yeah, and the big question with that, Kelsey, you're exactly right. I mean, the question was, well, is that a genetic effect or is that a familial effect? Is that an environmental effect? And part of what political science does is tries to parse that out using these tools that have been developed by geneticists and— and uh, applying them to the study of
1: politics. I, I did see when the, when the literature you're referencing made it into the headlines, I did read a little bit about it, and it made me pause a lot when I, I heard a social psychologist say that people don't vote their their political parties or their ideology, they vote their temperament. Mm. And their temperament's established by these psychological profiles that are ubiquitous across all cultures and all people. And I thought, wow, that's really, that's a game changer if it's true. It, it,
2: well, and that's, that, that, that's why it was so controversial. Is it was a game changer. But there's a lot of people who say it's, it's really not a game changer at all. Mm. Because there's one political, science who, political scientist, very popular, famous. He said, who cares? Who cares if there's genetic linkage? Um, how does it express itself? And what, how do we behave once we, given all those different things that are those genetic influences, you know, it's one thing understanding them. How why it's there? It's a different understanding their effects once you're out there. So it ranges the gamut. Some that have built their careers on it, others that
1: say it really doesn't matter. Makes sense.
0: Um, I know that before the show we were talking about kind of like your hobbies and what you like to do outside of political science, but you were talking how it actually there's really no line between you know, your, your role here at Colorado Mesa and what you do at home. You know, on Sunday, you said you were cooking and making food, but you're also, you know, watching all these Sunday talk shows.
2: Yeah, so, it, it, it may, and that may be true of, of all of acad- uh, academia and academics that that line is blurred more than, say, in other professions, but f- uh, definitely in mine, yeah. So on Sundays, as you're referencing, they play on um, a Sirius XM, they play oh, C-SPAN, and I know everybody listens to C-SPAN on, serious <laughs> xm on sundays they play the five sunday shows back to back to back and one of my my sunday is usually spent listening to that and cooking a dinner for that day and be for for the kids for the next day um yeah and it's it doesn't feel like work but that's what makes this job so great it doesn't feel like work it's it, it's my interest
0: How does your wife feel? Is she she just like, get this political science stuff out of here?
1: I'm cooking dinner. She's okay with it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's a good good trade-off.
1: You bet. How do you feel about this narrative that everyone says that the world's becoming more polarized, and people are becoming more extreme in the margins, and you see some of that. But at the other, uh, at other times, when you think about mediums like this, like this podcast, and how there there are so many people that are um, bypassing those traditional shows that you reference, traditional platforms for communication, is there more political? Is there like a political renaissance in some way of term, that that maybe is lurking behind the subtext of all that that gives you optimism that maybe? Platforms like this podcast are allowing people to express themselves in diverse set of ways, and it's not as dire and gloomy as as pundits might say. Well, you set my appearance on this podcast up way higher. (laughs) It's going to be a culture changer, yeah. (laughs)
2: Um, There's one thing that's for sure about politics is it changes, and there are moments in time, and I usually get the question, has has, has there ever been a time like this in history? And there's almost always an answer to reasons why I'd say, yes, there is, and no, there's not. So, you know, the changes, societal changes, economic changes, um, political changes. That's just the constant, but it's also what keeps, you know, keeps me in business because it's not static. This thing that's ever evolving and, um, and and something that we'll continue to study.
0: That's a good point. You know, you have, because you've been here for how, how many years now?
2: I started in 2008.
0: 2008. Okay. So yeah, yeah, a little while you've been here and everything you know it changes constantly so you're you're needing to kind of keep up be in the know of what's going on because um, you do have these young minds coming in asking you questions seeing if you've seen the latest or or what's happening and how how do you manage that in in your classroom like how do you how do you tell kind of what's going on without putting your belief systems in there
2: well, first off, I have, a, I have a pretty diverse media diet. I don't go to one place, listen to one thing, or read one 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 perspective. When I wake up, I have my list that I go through and, and really try and, and look at, if you want to think about this, on a left-right spectrum. Uh, I, I look at those different pieces. Um, two, you know, my background, having been born and raised in a community very similar to Grand Junction in, in, in so many different ways, and also spending voluntarily, I wanted to move out of that hometown in, in Philadelphia, I've really lived both lives and seen both approaches, and this is a thing, in both of those lives. I met really good people who wanted to make the best decisions. And so I'm always reminded of that when, when approaching an issue that I'm not, the, I'm not the owner of reality for that issue and that there's going to be diverse perspectives. And it's to have a conversation about those perspectives rather than to try and convince someone that I have the answer on whatever issue we're talking about.
1: What was it like living in Philadelphia? I mean, that being sort of the... A city that changed the course of Mm. human culture and changed the 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 globe, so to speak, in terms of the ideas that came out of Philadelphia and some of the historical events. Like, was it as a political scientist, was it significant for you living there? Yeah, and like most things, you wish you would have taken
2: greater advantage of it once you leave right when you're there it's always well I got to get this done and that done um, but my experience in Philadelphia was it was great uh, it was from an educational standpoint not just saying graduate school but just from living there and observing and uh, meeting people it was it was a very educational experience given that I again grew up in a community very similar to Grand Junction it really it really pushed me to think of things differently I wouldn't trade a trade for anything in the world and what I will say is Philadelphia gets a bad rap, uh, reputation, and I think it's unfortunate. It's a, it's a wonderful city.
0: And was it hard for you at first to, to, you know, you go into this city completely different from where you grew up, and all of a sudden everything you know is being questioned or or, or you're finding out it's something the opposite? How mm-hmm. did you navigate that?
2: I didn't take it personal. You know, I, I, I tried to understand what, what would why would there be such a different belief here? Why does it seem to be, why, do, why does the texture seem to be different when it comes towards these beliefs? And by not taking it personal and saying, you know, I'm going to approach this from an educational perspective to, to, to learn from it, it was actually quite the opposite of being stressful. It was, it was exciting to say, oh, okay, here, you know, I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to to learn from this. I mean, overall the you know, the moving there was very stressful with all the those different pieces, but the people, the experiences, I wouldn't trade it for anything.
1: Well earlier you said you were taking a risk at offending the philosophers by starting your out your discipline with Plato and then here you are fast forwarding to Ben Franklin and Philadelphia. But you said history is the overarching most maybe the most important discipline within political science what is your favorite moment in history what jumps out at you as being something that you think is truly significant um, as it pertains to to political science and the development of your discipline historical the time? development of the discipline or yeah. the something that i that i'm really interested in
0: it's a hard that's a hard yeah. question yeah. that's maybe, so yeah. broad. maybe the <laughs> latter
1: yeah like something that really influenced you as a political scientist a historical event or a a, a space in time within that
2: well i'll tell you what, like right right now I'm kind of stuck in the 60s and by that I mean the 1960s Uh, so okay real recent for modern modern history yeah I mean I know I'm supposed to say the American Revolution and the French Revolution and go back I know I'm supposed to say that but look I I got caught up in the Beatles Abbey Road and uh, and Robert (laughs) Robert Caro's um, books on Lyndon Johnson and for those of you who are listening and David and Kelsey if you want a, a very long but good Uh, Good books to read. Robert Caro's Treatment of of Lyndon Johnson is a fascinating series. I think there's four books out. He's about ready to release the last one. Put it this way, by the time he's already like 3,000 pages into his writing, we haven't even got to Vietnam yet. So it's that detailed and thorough. Um, So I would say that period right now is fascinating me. It's that, 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 that Great society programs. It's it's that that moving to the height of liberalism of the nineteen sixties, which then is going to show that reaction in the seventies and then especially into the eighties against that. So that's that's where my head's at right now. But if pushed, that that between because no, this is just between the two of us, I assume. Um, (laughs) No one's one's listening to this. Yeah, Um, (laughs) that that would be my that would be where. Where my head's at right now.
1: I like it. Taking a risk, rolling the dice on in the 1960s. LBJ yeah. all the way. All right. <laughs> yeah,
2: that, that's the thing with LBJ. The best and the worst that a president can show is, is wrapped up into that one individual. And um, love him or hate him, there's so many different ways to look at him and his presidency.
0: This is super random, but um, sure. I, think, I, random. I think, you know, you're, you're talking about the 60s, you know, and we're talking about history and how it pertains to political science. And I think that's one good thing that happens on social media that I do see oftentimes are these accounts that pop up that really showcase, you know, it for you know, Gen Z and the younger generation, kind of what's like what happened in the past and doing it in a modern way mm-hmm. that gets them intrigued and interested in different topics. And um, I saw one this morning, and it was about the '60s. Was it so, about the '60s? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah this,
2: or the '60s coming back? Is that what I should expect? What was it? <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. The music I'm good with. The
1: music I'm good with. The turbulence. Yeah, I think we've had enough turbulence for to last me for a while. What about the 70s? So the, everyone knows what, this, what what happened in the 60s, everyone knows what happened in the 80s. Was the 70s kind of a mashup between those two as the two decades collided? You yeah, had the, I what? mean... What was going on politically in the 70s? I mean, we got Carter,
2: right? (laughs) (laughs) I feel so bad saying that. You know, Carter, 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 what's amazing about Carter is his post-presidency successes. He gets more attention for what he did after the presidency than he did what was in the presidency. Yeah, it it really is a blending. Um, Nixon was that transition period where he started to push back uh, things like new federalism that, that really set the stage for the, for the Reagan revolution of the, of, of the eighties. So I think a, a, that
1: is a good way of putting it as a blending, a blending moment. Carter that I actually posted something a while back on, on social media. I saw your know, kid rock had done a performance for all the past presidents and Carter was sitting there and all, and it was a night it was like a really nice moment to see all these past presidents, going through that symbolism and in, in the context of pop culture, it was kind of cool. And yeah. like you said, it seems like Carter is the best maybe ever at doing that. Yeah. Yeah. You saw it on social media. Yeah. I got, you got to get on social media. <laughs>
2: I guess. I mean, two two things right you, there. Yeah.
1: You're yeah. out. I, I am. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to see Carter um, singing along to Kid Rock, <laughs> social media is the place you got to go. I'm not sure I do.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you said you've been here since 2008 and you know you're you're here on campus you're you're teaching these students but you also have a role in the community and can you can you kind of talk about how important it is for you to you know go and talk and talk about political science in a way that makes sense for um, the local community here
2: yeah um, I, I really don't think there's a boundary between the community and the university um, and there shouldn't be they're they're symbiotic they're interdependent and um, they, they they really do benefit each other so I, I try to take as many opportunities as I can reasonably to work with community by moderate debates I can't say I'm very good at it but I try to I try to to, to, to help with that I um, I try to be available for press interviews if I feel like I can speak on the subject. I, I, I'm proud, very proud member of the planning commission of Fruita, Colorado, my, my hometown, where I feel like, you know, I want to I give back and really, really, you know, be part of that process. So I think it, 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 deep down in me I, I, is a strong belief that the health of the university is a reflection of the health of the community and vice versa.
1: So you're an appointed official right now. Is there an elected official in, potentially in your future? <laughs> well, I don't know. What, what what is it that every candidate
2: says? Well, usually you you predict whether someone's going to run if they write a book. So you have to wait and see if I write a book. <laughs> and then I'm trying to remember the what's the response that every candidate says. At this time I'm really devoted to uh, to to the, to the work that I'm doing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> mayor oh, Gollum, it, May, I see mayor, that in the future. Yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Kelsey's reference to this community nexus that you have and that you work hard on, the third congressional district. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Tell people what that is. I mean, everyone might have heard about it because of the election of Lauren Boebert. It was in the national headlines. But, but I mean, the, the third congressional district has a rich history. Why is it such a significant? Congressional district related to some others, and wh- what makes it special, and why do you care so much about it?
2: Boy, so suddenly the third congressional district's in the news, right? Uh, came out of <laughs> came out of nowhere. Uh, I, I care about it one because it's this for for people who live in Grand Junction that's your that's your home congressional district, um, but it is a really unique district. It first off, it's massive just in terms of its its footprint. Um, it's, I think, don't Google check, fact me on this and leave a comment, but it'd be something like the 20th largest state if you look at the total square miles. And, you know, when we talk about, well, any state, but we'll just use Colorado, they usually say, well, you know, there's two Colorados. You have the East side, you have the Denver side, and you have the Western, Western slope. Uh, Yeah. Even within that third congressional district, there's just so many different pieces from industry uh, to, to, to to political leanings, voting patterns. Um, It's, 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 it's really hard to sum up the third congressional district in just one word.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the things that jumps out at me and this is uh, it's interesting because the, the congressional districts on the front range say are relatively small geographically, very small. I'm guessing, I don't know this for sure, but they're probably more homogenous politically. I don't know. But over here, it's like the third congressional district, you have a town like Aspen, Mm -hmm. uh, you have Carbondale, you have Telluride, you have Steamboat, but you also have Craig and you have Montrose and Meeker and Maybell and Grand Junction. And these communities are so diverse and different um, socioeconomically. Um, and then you also have natural resources and recreation. It's just, there's so much going on. Mm -hmm. You're not being able to put one word to it. I understand. I totally understand that, but it's gotta be fun for you as a political scientist to be able to kind of live in the third. And, and as a political case study, it's gotta be a great little Petri dish for you to dabble in, in cold coursework. And then when you get calls from reporters, things like that, it is, and it's always changing. You know, we're, we're moving into a
2: redistricting phase now. So what the third congressional district is now in two years, it may be. Very different, not likely not to be very different, but it'll one thing's for sure it'll be different, uh, and how those differences change every ten years it keeps you on your toes and and really ingrained in what's going on in the third.
0: You know when when we did make it into the national news, what what what'd your classroom look like? You know what did, what was that conversation?
2: Yeah. Well, just a lot of questions. You know, what I've noticed with students over the, so, so, as I mentioned earlier, I've been here since 2008. I've seen just different approaches to politics over the years. And I would say that students today, they come in with a lot more questions, um, and really trying to, to figure it out. I don't, and I don't know why. People say, well, it's social media because you're so inundated with information. You don't, it's hard to separate fact from fiction. And so, But what I have seen is there's just a lot of questions that student have, students have, and I, I love it. I love coming in and them wanting to know, not know the answer, but ask questions and understand so they can fit it together.
0: I like that you brought that up, fact- from fiction, you know, and I'm sure that's a big part of your role is is teaching students how do you decipher what you're seeing if, if it's if it's real, if it's an opinion, if it's fact, like this process of of navigating all this information. Mm-hmm.
2: So what I tell my students is if you're looking, politics is shades of gray. And if you're going to study this, if you're going to be involved in this, you you have to be comfortable with that because, you know, rarely do we – not rarely, but the exception is coming across something where it's either 100% true or one hundred percent false there's usually bits and pieces and shades of gray within there, so if I, I think by freeing students to say okay let's 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 look at this through that that shades of gray lens, I think it frees them up to to where they're not afraid of getting the and i'm for Kelsey and David, they can see me doing air quotes here uh, <laughs> the the wrong answer you know that 's what they 're afraid of, and
1: i I think if you allow them that room, they appreciate it it's so important because I think any of the anytime your students are going out into to be practitioners of politics or that to get an uh, internship at the legislature or through Congress gray will be their life yeah, and if 100%. they're not comfortable with it they're not going to be successful or they're going to do things that could harm their career and and or sour them to politics, maybe. So I, that's great to hear that you are able to do that. Well, in some ways, too, the more that you study this stuff, the more gray there becomes. And
2: that's a bit of irony is that the more the more that I do this, the more questions I have and the the less clear things become. And some things I just I just accept it. You know, I, I'll, I'll believe a certain way about something and I can't prove it. I can't prove, I can't point to a study, but deep down I feel it and it
1: influences me. And I just, I go with it. Do you think, do I want to put you on the spot here? Mm -hmm. Everybody, there's a lot of hand wringing about the polarization of society. And you have people on the radical left and on the radical right. um, And that everybody's kind of coalescing around these, these polar caps, so to speak. But in some ways, like those two spaces have always been filled and in democracy, they collide and where they collide is the gray and even amongst even in the last couple of years, our institutions have seemed like, from someone who's not into it, like you are held up pretty well. Like, is there maybe a little? Is some of the concern overblown about is this like Chicken Little is what you're? Yeah, yeah I mean, is guy's how do you see falling? it? Yeah, because it's <laughs> like things held up pretty well. Our institutions did, and there's always been these these radical fringes throughout the history, of democracy, and they kind of hit, and then in what happens in the middle is where we live is that right yeah the 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 big problem well, i hate the big
2: problem but one thing that we're seeing is that we're seeing a, sort of an abandoning of the middle and moving towards further away from the center line at the elite level at the elite discourse level which makes it hard to find compromise and that's that doesn't and that's what is concerning at the institutional level is the abandoning of the center it doesn't leave a lot of room for compromise. So we're 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 governing by majorities almost. As for example, as we're seeing in in current politics, we're so worried about who gets fifty votes in the Senate because that fifty one with uh, the vice president that that's going to determine the way that politics goes. So the the concern to me is that that that. That we have at the elite level abandoned that center space, and if I had the the magic political science wand, I'd like to see that repopulated.
1: And is that repopulation probably the U.S. Senate's the best hope we have in terms of because of why it was designed, how it's structured? Is that where is that where that could happen? Do you think if it can happen, it could? Yeah, but I think
2: it's going to take a bit of both okay. in in the House and in the Senate.
0: We hit on this just a little bit, but um, you. You serve as the coordinator for the political science program 's internship program
2: I do, and the fac- i 'm very proud to say the faculty advisor of uh, associated student government
0: and what what does that mean to you? you know I mean you can you can come in, show up, teach your class, go to your life, <laughs> but mm-hmm. you're, you have your finger in all these kind of important parts for students and, and, and their future and what that means oh,
2: I love it I love it, it you know when I went into When I consider going into academia, I never really thought that the advising part uh, would be as exciting to me uh, as it is, but quickly, quickly, it's become one of the most important things to me. I love seeing our students develop, identify what they want to do, work with them to help them achieve their goals. And then that that feedback loop when they go off into, again, air quotes, the real world, uh, to get that. Feedback from them about you know their time here and what they learned and how it, how it helped them and some ways that I do that again internships I think internships are one of the best things that students can do especially if you want to go to law school what better way to determine you want to go to law school than to work with a, a lawyer um, associated student government it's a collection of great students who. I, I've been fortunate enough to be able to to serve as their faculty advisor for a long period of time, weekly meetings, and and really meeting these student leaders. Uh, it, it it puts a little pep in my step when I come onto campus.
1: I don't think people realize how many of your students go out and and work in politics and do these internships and work in congressional offices. And I'm it's, I'm glad to hear that that's a, a important part of your job from your perspective because it seems like. People might not realize you really can go into political science and get employment. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, uh, v- very much. So. The largest em- employer in the country is not Amazon. It's the it's the government, and it's uh, there's so many jobs that are out there. And I I think really sitting down with our students and trying to determine what it is they want to do, and removing myself from it, just just like an occupational counselor. Like, what is it that's important to you? Where do you see yourself? And then setting up those opportunities to be able to allow them to 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 achieve those goals. Yeah, it br- it brings me great, great joy in my job.
1: Hearing you talk about that uh, reminds me of uh, John Redifer. Yeah, who who was here and my mentor and, and, and this, uh, the Redifer Institute is named after yeah. him. And could you comment on his legacy and, and tell our listeners a little bit about uh, who he was and what he represented for this institution?
2: Yeah. So John Redifer was the former uh, uh, social and behavioral sciences department head. He was, a, he was the guy who hired me. He's a political scientist here on campus. I was able to work with him for uh, probably six years or so.
1: When did he retire?
2: Uh, I want to say 13, 14, somewhere around okay. that, somewhere around that range. Um, Yeah, he was just an amazing individual who... Um, who was involved with the community. And uh, again, that's where I think part of my desire to want to work with the community came, came from my interactions with him. And it, probably one of the most common questions I get from community members is, oh, did you know John Redifer? And it, it, he, that just really shows that he was dialed into the community and their needs and the students. He, he really sets students up for success and they're out there in the, in the, in the real world. Um, it, you know uh, making him proud i'm sure
1: I had a chance to see him at uh, graduation recently, and mm-hmm. it was really good to catch up so yeah, yeah he's okay. a great guy
0: and going back just real quick, um, uh, you know talking about ASG and these internships, I think that's one of the most important takeaway for our listeners, maybe is that you know if if they are students or if they're future students or if they're parents um, or grandparents or neighbors, you know just really talking with students and knowing that getting involved on campus is so important and part of that is you know being in in clubs and organizations and then also these internships where yeah they they learn and they network and they get to go out after after college and and just thrive and so um, thank you for the work you're doing there.
2: Yeah, happy to and yeah, I, I think that's a very important part. The the recipe for success is, many students know it and what, what was the book title we came up with, Kelsey? It's all oh. about the hustle or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's students going out there and putting in that work and making those connections. That's really what pays off. Um, GPA has got to be there. The, the The knowledge has to be there, of course, but it's, it's more than it, it's not unit dimensional success. It's, it's multidimensional.
1: Well, as we wrap up here, um, you've mentioned that politics kind of is g- in the gray, but I want to ask you a very black and white question. No, Do you have to pick one. You can't be Lyndon Johnson because oh, no. But if you had to pick, let's say one, um, historical figure mm. that is your favorite when it comes to your influencing you as a political scientist, who would it be? And why? You said I can't pick Lyndon nope. Johnson? Already went, you know, already oh, covered oh, that well, yeah. That's not
2: fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, favorite historical figure and why?
0: He's putting you on the spot oh, yeah. right now. Yeah,
1: we, I know, yeah. and Kelsey, you don't look all that envious. So <laughs> Collins, specific. our auto engineer here and he says we have plenty of, uh, <laughs> of, of hard at, drive space. You guys we can't figure all I'm looking at the board yeah. thinking like <laughs> how much time's left on this thing.
2: Does it have to be? Does can it be academic? What do you think should be historical? Or does it think? have to be like an American historical? Figure?
0: No, it's whoever comes to your mind. Yeah,
2: I, yeah, yeah. I I have such a strong affinity for the Federalist Papers, as much as as much as many of my students when they read it their 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 eyes kind of glaze over it, it wasn't written for today it was written for hundreds of years ago right and oftentimes students say they just get to the point but so i'm going to flip it and hope that we're running out of time and say <laughs> it's a thing not a person in it, the, the federal papers or just such an interesting insight into the debate. And also, too. You're saying uh, Hamilton and Monroe, then? uh, uh, Madison. (laughs) Madison Madison and and Hamilton and and John Jay. Um, No, I'm not. I'm not. (laughs) Because Hamilton got cool. Hamilton got cool all of a sudden with the play, right? So I don't want to seem like I'm just jumping on that bandwagon. That's a good (laughs)
0: bandwagon,
2: though.
1: (laughs) We'll let him off with Federalist Papers. But also,
2: I also (laughs) want to point (laughs) this out. There's also a series (laughs) of papers that were written called the Anti-Federalist Papers. You really should read them together. They weren't as organized. They, <laughs> it was like a
1: Jefferson thing.
2: It, no, it was a collection of they're written by like they're titled. You know how all the all the federal's papers were titled Publius. These are like an old wig. Uh, they they title <laughs> them and yeah, it's there. There's some great insights and hmm. and I I really tell my students put yourself in in that time frame during this this building revolution and you're getting these these different perspectives. What would you do? Are you, are you picking up arms and going to war against one of the the, the world's greatest militaries? You know, it, it really adds a whole different
1: different level when you can read them together. Hmm. It's a good good way to wrap up is putting him on the spot, right? <laughs> yeah. Thanks, <Okay. Yes>. David. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> Thank right. you so much, Thanks, Dr.
0: Golub. So that concludes our CMU Now Special Edition podcast with CMU Professor of Political Science, Justin Golub. And... Tune in next time. I'm Kelsey Coleman with my co host, David Ludlam. Thanks for listening.
2: Thank you. Thanks.